You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive, or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. In a different direction, first season... Uh, you get to the, you don't win the league because no. of West Ham. I know. We, yeah. we'll, we'll skirt over that. Then you get to the cup final. Do you remember the FA Cup final song you recorded? Um, it, I do, it was it the striker one. Yes. Yeah. We, we did two. Do we, we did two. Again. One in '95 and one in '96. What's it like recording a song as a squad? Do you enjoy it, or is it a thing you're made to do? It was something that, to be fair, certain lads in the team. Uh, I think Lee Sharp was maybe across it quite more, bet, a yeah. bit more than me. <laughs> um, it wasn't something I particularly, you know, the idea of singing or dancing, you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it just didn't really sort of fit with, you know, what I wanted to do. But you also, you're all, you're all great mates and you're all yeah. sort of there together and you recognise actually you're growing up as, you know, the cup final song was a, an institution. Yeah. Not like now. I don't think I've the last time I've seen that. I don't think I can remember the last time I saw yeah. a team actually do a song together. I'm not there may have been some, but I've not seen it. Sky haven't got their fake up. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want I don't watch it. That's not what it was, is no. it? <laughs> um, so I think uh I do remember I think it was like a rap, wasn't it? Yeah. I think was I think it actually appeared they always appeared at that time quite high in the charts. Well come on your reds was the number one. But like, that was before your time. Yeah, but because you remember you got Hundreds of thousands, millions yeah. of United fans, and they all buy it because yeah. it's nostalgia. I bought a Plymouth Argyle. Yeah. So I mean, at the time, you've either got Rick Astley or sort of Steve Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> Did Sir Alex kind of say you've got to, uh, like apply the same levels of professionalism to this music <laughs> and you do? You well, I mean, what he's done, he's just, he's just put Brian Kidd front and centre, hasn't he? He's had, he's had nothing to do with it. <laughs> He's basically thrown his assistant under a bus and said, look, you know, I'm not going in that, you get in there. Um, speaking of music, we, we heard a rumour that you used to take a guitar on the, away, the team bus away. Is that true? No, not no, not away from home. If I went on a tour with England or we went on a tour with United for like a couple of weeks, I would take it, yeah. I, I got reasonably decent at... But there are other footballers that played instruments. Um, I think Dion... Did you jam with anyone? No, no. Dion Dublin did in the early days when I was first in the first team. I think he... I don't know what he was... He, he was he, he was definitely... Musical. He's got. He's invented a drum since. Yeah, it's musical. Um, and a couple of lads fancy themselves as singers. Gigsy always used to do a rap on a night out, and Sharp Lee Sharp do a dance. Yeah, yeah. Gigsy got a good rap actually. <laughs> That's what, is it the? Uh, is it the, what's the, what's the? Is the Gangsters Paradise the? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Rappers Delight, not Gangsters Paradise. <laughs> Tell the way I'm up on me. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was Rapper's Delight, he does an incredible... So every time we were on a, tro- a trophy on a team night out, you knew at some point those sort of Jack Daniels and Cokes would kick in and the Rapper's Delight would sort of... And he'd just be there. Um, and, you know, it, it was... To be fair, we all responded to it. It was just yeah. a brilliant thing. So, no, we, we had some great nights out, to be fair. The one thing I would say was, though, we didn't go out if we lost. I, I genuinely don't believe if you play for Manchester United, you can go out if you lose. Sitting with Baronis. You, I mean, just just hide it. I mean, <laughs> no, so, it no, the idea the idea of fans seeing you out if you just lost a game of football with what it means to them and how you feel yourself. The idea of going out and having a drink just doesn't can't happen. So the idea I always found, found it like you know these lads are sometimes from other teams and you'd seem like they'd be out on a, on a Wednesday night having just been beat. We'd be out on a Wednesday night after a game, maybe the odd time if we didn't have a game a weekend or say we played at weekend if we didn't have a game for a week, we'd be out. And you'd see like players from other clubs coming in, and you think they've just been beaten four one at Sunderland today. <laughs> how the cheek, how the cheek to turn up in here? Imagine, <laughs> embarrassed. Yeah. Yeah, wouldn't yeah. be embarrassed. Yeah. Wouldn't you? you know, I just would be embarrassed. We, we 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 had that thing about us. We, if we lost, we couldn't go out. Yeah. 
Uh, when you then played for England, that must have been a very different kind of atmosphere. Was yeah. Ter- Terry Venable's a bit more of a laugh than Alex Ferguson. <laughs> <laughs> he was more relaxed. Oh, Terry Venables was very different than Sir Alex because Terry Venables was a coach. Terry yeah. Venables was a really brilliant coach. So he would, he would coach the team uh, with Don Howe. Don Howe would do the defence. Terry would do the attack. They'd then uh, bring them both together at the end of the game to do sort of like a, a, a team function together. He was a brilliant coach and Don Howe was a brilliant coach. Whereas Sir Alex was a manager. So Sir Alex had great coaches underneath him. He had Brian Kidd, Steve McLaren, Carlos Queiroz, Rennie Moonstein, Jim Ryan. You know, he always had coaches underneath. Archie Knox, obviously, in his early years. So Sir Alex didn't do sessions. Didn't He walked out onto the training pitch, Sir Alex, at the start of the training session, would stand on the side and watch and observe and, yeah. and feed into players' little messages and pull players aside and do things like that. He wouldn't coach the session. He wouldn't say, you know, I want that right back to be a con lad. He took in and it, that was the job of the coaching yeah. staff to do that. So it was very different. It was a very different setup. I loved it working under Terry. It was my best years with England with the first two years. Yeah. Um, it's a shame when it's like that because you want, obviously, always yeah, a creator yeah, yeah. sort of goal. But it was the best two years by a street. It was the best team that I played in by a street. And that experience I had with United under those leaders that I mentioned before, when I first got into the England team, the team was Seaman, Adams, Pierce, Platt, Gascoigne, Ince, Shearer. Unbelievable players yeah, yeah, and characters. Yeah. You know, you talk about fantastic legends. You know, Paul Gascoigne, Stuart Pierce, Tony Adams, and Gascoigne had been in Italy, so they'd had you know, international experience. And you remember the 90 World Cup that they'd been part of. So it was just a, again, amazing. it was a real amazing yeah. atmosphere. And again, Terry was an England coach who still had that, you know, he, he would pull players up. Whereas England coaches now sometimes have been a little bit, well, he's not really my player. He's going to go back to my club in, you know, he's going to go back to his club in six, seven days' time. So I can't really lay into him yeah. too much because I need him back again in a month. And yeah. it was a bit, a bit, always a bit weird with England, but actually Terry and Don, it was, it was definitely the best that I had. But Euro 96, yeah. here's a quiz question. If you can name the one other man you play in the squad. Yeah, my brother. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Yeah, because I was with him, you know. <laughs> <laughs> did you room together? And well, did you hang- yeah, we did, and that's the one thing that people don't. And when I first got into England squad in '95, it was me and Gary Pallister in the squad. And Gary Pallister pulled out through an injury, and I was on my own. So that first twelve months, yeah, in the squad with England, I was on my own. So who did you hang out with? No one. <laughs> really? I, mean, I, I was yeah, it was honestly, I was on my own, and and my brother then got in the squad towards the end. But I really was. I mean, look, they looked after me and stuff. You know, there's no yeah. sort of like, but yeah, I did really. I had a room on my own. There was no other Man United player there. And Liverpool had about six or seven players, eight players in the squad at that time. The John Barnes was in the squad. John Scales was in there. Fowler, Matt Manaman, uh, Collymore, Redknapp. Redknapp. Um, they had six or seven players in there, so it was actually quite intimidating at the time. Yeah. You, you know, David James, I think, was sort of in and around it. There was, there was six or seven players they had in there, and I always remember thinking. And then all of a sudden, Bex came through, Scholes came yeah. through, Butty came through, and we had four or five, and it started to, you know, they started to sort of, if you like, outnumber them. Well, not really outnumber them, replace them, I mean, more like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it was mentally, are you like, were you a bit like, these are the enemy, even though we're on the same team? That, that was it. With Liverpool, for me, it was always difficult because the, 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 the roots were so deep. It was difficult to rip them up just for a week every month, you know what I mean? It, yeah. Just then, all of a sudden, then, then replant them. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was difficult. That was, a, I mean, people have said that that the sort of the 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 spirit, the spirit we got on with each other, but there was always that day yeah. night. You got to remember at the time though, particularly in the mid two thousands, and it was so intense between Chelsea, Liverpool, United. You know, Rafa Benitez, Liverpool were going for European Cups and Chelsea were having those battles with Chelsea. Chelsea were going with us for the leagues and Arsenal were going with us for the leagues. The intensity around that time yeah. within the clubs and the and the, the games were so feisty and so um, tense that actually you couldn't just switch it off when yeah. you went and turned up for England. You couldn't switch, you tried to, there was never mentioned, but there's still that thing underneath, isn't there, that yeah. just sort of lingers. I think that's what people refer to, but... Yeah, in Euro '96, you were so you were suspended for the semi-final. Yeah, what was that like as a day? What did you do? He, I, I were did, you at the gra- were you yeah. on the bench? No, I, I, I sat in the director's box. I wasn't allowed on the bench. Um, it was basically I played every game in the so I played the first three. I played against Switzerland, played in Scotland, played against Holland, played in Spain in the quarter-final, and then got tackle. I got a, a book for a second challenge on. I don't know where my first booking was. It was in the group phase. I got booked for a challenge on Sergi, the left back for Spain. I remember sort of after the game and Terry said to me, don't, don't worry son, you'll be back for the final. 
I was devastated because I just the atmosphere was out of this world. I mean, we, we used to, we used to stay at Burnham Beaches, which was about forty minutes away from Wembley, and the uh, part, quite a large part of the journey was um, on 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 A roads, not the motorway, and there were thousands lining the streets on the way to the games. Oh, wow. It was absolutely off the scale. The, the emotion in the stadiums and the country yeah. was unbelievable. I mean, that that, that um, the end of that Scotland game and the Holland night. I'm getting goosebumps now thinking about the atmosphere at Wembley where you're yeah. talking about obviously the three lines on the shirt was out and it was just unbelievable you think about what's happened this last summer obviously with everyone mm. you know get England getting to a World Cup semi-final and but it you, still you, doesn't feel right does no it? and you imagine that sort of in that gate in that point it was in our own country yeah in, it's in yeah. England and you're thinking it was off the scale in terms of the atmosphere in the country everyone just got pulled along with it it was just a, that day was just for me just a real massive disappointment. Uh, but I thought at the what time. What was it like in the, in the evening after the game? The way Bats thought, do you know something? We'd been away for about five, six weeks, and the lads all went back into the bar to drink. And I remember going back into the bar for a few drinks, but I just wanted to get home. Yeah. I just wanted to get home. I'm not, I, I was absolutely knackered. We were all knackered. And I remember getting a car at two, three o'clock in the morning to get home. So I remember saying to Michelle, who was with us right the way through, even when I was there as a coach, and my car was booked along with Phil's for like seven, eight o'clock in the morning to go back to Manchester. And I remember like two, three o'clock in the morning just thinking, I just want to go now. And we just literally got in a car and we went home. Really? Yeah. We went home and so that was it. I always remember Stuart Pearce after the game say, retiring um, on the coach. It was a lot of emotion. So he came on the coach after the game, stood at the front, and basically said, that's it, I just want to make an announcement. So I'm, you know, I'm retiring from international football. So it was a real massive surprise to see him in sort of back there in September when Glenn Ola picked him in against, <laughs> against, against, against Moldova in the first. Well, I was like, hang on a second. <laughs> Did I see people crying for you literally six, six weeks ago? You're shaking his hand saying, well done, you're, well done, you're, you're piercing, great career, well done. <laughs> All of a sudden, Glenn wants to play three at the back. He needs a left-footed centre back, and he thinks actually Stuart Pearce is still playing well. <laughs> and he, I'll never let my country down. <laughs> so he ends up back in the team literally about six weeks later. He's like, yeah, brilliant. So there's the things that stand out for me that night. One incident we want to ask you about from the mid '90s: the grey kit at Southampton. Yeah. What happened at half time? Who brought it up? You? The boss. No, the, the, boss. the boss. Did he? Yeah. But why the was the second kit there? Is that, a, is that a normal thing? I don't know. Do you know something? He hated that kit. And also, <laughs> there, there is a bit of science behind this. Um, and people to this day obviously always joke and say it's because we were losing and because of this and because of that. So Sir Alex had actually employed. And you think about him now, the transformation that he had to go through. And you, you, talk, about, you talk about some managers now and you can see that they're set in the ways and they're old school and they haven't evolved and they're still like doing the same things as they were 10 years ago it doesn't work you have to evolve obviously with players and stuff and I think of Sir Alex he had employed I think it was a professor from Liverpool University around site yeah. a vision specialist uh, called Gail Stevenson and she would come in twice a week to the club and do you need to talk people to about oh he's not match fit yet or he's not got his sharpness back yeah he and she never believed that it was to do anything to do, and I actually think there is something in this. It was nothing to do with physical. Right. Physically, you always were sort of, you know, you worked hard to come back from injury, you tried your best, you fit, yeah. physically You're fit fresh. anyway. The sharpness was the alertness about basically your vision, about how quickly you could pick up your teammates. So the ball arrives into you, when you're playing well and you're in a rhythm, the ball will come into you and you know where your next pass is before you've started. Yeah. That's not a physical thing. Yeah. That's actually an awareness thing of actually knowing that you've had that little look in your eyes up towards the top of the pitch. You've seen Mark Hughes in that channel. The ball's coming across me from Skulls and I can see exactly what's going to happen and I'm playing there. It's almost like a, a sixth sense. It's yeah. almost like that thing. You just know it's going to happen. And basically what she reckoned was that you, basically your vision and your, your connectivity to how you sort of saw things and saw passes and saw players and that was, that was the whole reason right. you weren't match fit. So she brought in a lot of eye exercises an alertness exercise. What kind of eye exercise? Basically, uh, magic eyes. <laughs> no, just literally about eye muscles. So basically, the eye mus the, the muscles in the eye. Yeah. She said basically, what happens is you stop using them when you're injured, in a football sense. Which yeah. is obvious, you don't play football. So for th five, six weeks, you would stop using your eye muscles in a football sense. 
you know, you basically wouldn't sort of be looking at, looking around you all the time. You wouldn't sort of always have your head on the swivel. You'd, you wouldn't have that picture. When people talk about a picture in football, of, you know, you have that picture of he always has a picture when he receives the ball. That is about your, obviously, your awareness and your vision and, and things yeah. like that. Oh, he's got no vision. So basically, she worked on a lot of eye-type exercises and she actually said to Sir Alex, going back to the kicks, I'm not, I'm not yeah. getting away from the story here, <laughs> but this, this was the detail that he would go into. And he, she basically said that you imagine you've got these cra- this crowd behind you. Yeah. These huge crowds that we always played in front of, 75,000, 30,000. There are colours that you can see quicker than others and stand out more than others. It's, it's, it's obvious. Yeah. They do. Sometimes yeah. you can, you know, you'll, you'll notice, you know, the reason people wear bright yellow on a motorway when they're working on it is so you yeah. can see them. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not, I'm not, not, not the, the grey Man United kid. Yeah. <laughs> no, people don't wear grey on the motorway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. So the idea that she believed that when you saw these grey kits, so he had it in his head. She he, she'd said to him, "This is not right. The players will not pick up at a distance in a in, in, in a in a crowd atmosphere the shirts as quickly as the other ones." So what did you think when he said it at half? No, this was something that had oh. been going on for months. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he'd rejected this kit couple of months before he would not have it at all because the eye specialist and the vision specialist had said look they're not the lads are not going to pick this up yeah. as quickly as they are going to pick up the red kit so when uh, a couple of us sort of made mistakes for goals <laughs> it was the I- yeah it's absolutely ideal for him just to be able to say but he was like that but also he was a master of distraction wasn't he yeah he was a master of taking the the, the, the Taking the headline away from the players when it was bad. When when we interviewed Matt Letizia, we asked him about that game. Yeah. And he said he was leaving, and someone asked him about that, and he hadn't noticed that you changed kit at half time. <laughs> he should have, he should have seen our vision specialist. <laughs> no, so Gail was with the club for many many years, 10, 15 years, and she would be working on players' alertness, their vision, but also she then started to work after that with the with the kit manufacturers around basically how could how our kit stand out the most. Yeah, that was it really. It, 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 there's a bit more science behind it than basically the gaffer just thought, didn't fancy the kit and thought that we basically that was the reason we were losing. <laughs> um, one other mid '90s thing we'd love to talk about: Keegan's rant. Yeah. Like when, when he when he broke down and that. What was the, What was it like on the training ground? Were you doing impressions of it to each other? Like, was there a bit? No, of- no the manager, to be fair to him, the boss, he did want to get into the head of the opposition manager. So there was that obviously rivalry between yeah. sort of. You know, uh, Kenny Alglish and, and the boss, and there's that rivalry between Arsene Wenger and the boss, and that rivalry between Kevin Keegan. And he'd always try and gain an advantage in any shape or form. I mean, I remember Rafa Benitez's one, the facts one. Yeah, it's a facts. And obviously, we were a lot more experienced at the time when Rafa Benitez did it in that sort of mid 2000s. And we knew they were done at that moment. Yeah. It, he was done. He was never going to win that league. He was never going to win that league. At that moment, we knew they would fall away. And Sir Alex, if you think about it, didn't always take people on. So when Jose came in that first two years and Jose had a brilliant team, he never took him on, if you remember. Yeah. Because he, he knew he couldn't win. So he was clever. He was clever enough to know when to pull off, clever enough to know when to go for it, clever enough to know when to sort of make people bite. Yeah. And he was aware and he'd always try and gain an advantage. I always tell the story about him. He used to stand in the tunnel before every single game outside the dressing room and shake every single one of our players' hands. But I didn't realise until I was captain what he was doing he was looking down the tunnel so that the opposition players saw him and the referees saw him so every player of the opposition saw him as well Every that inti- not intimid- it's a bit of intimidation yeah, yeah. he was an overpowering figure yeah. this idea just this, this idea you know winning, winning, before, winning in the tunnel before you've even gone out on the yeah. pitch there was an element of that with him in terms of the psychology he used to tell us when, when, the, when the handshakes were introduced he used to say make sure you look into the eyes of every single player you shake their hands of when you walk down that line Hold, hold it strong and look right into their eyes. Yeah. He said, and you're something, one or two of them will fold. One or two of them will think, right, that, you know what I mean? It's like, because there's a sternness, there's a message in it. So it's, a, it's a challenge thing. And he had those little things that yeah. were the techniques that didn't maybe work all the time, but he was always looking for that advantage. Obviously, you think about him pointing towards his watch and yeah. you know, all that sort of stuff that he did was all around the edges of winning and sort of these little things. So where were we anyway? Kevin Keegan. Yeah, Kevin Keegan. Yeah, so when he did that, I mean, the country loved Kevin Keegan. Why wouldn't you? The country loved Newcastle. The country wanted Newcastle to win. But the reality of it is, they were struggling. You know, when we beat them up there and Cantona scored, when they were actually better than us for 60 minutes, they were battered us for 60 minutes, that was the point whereby they just started, they couldn't handle it. Yeah. They couldn't handle it and they weren't, you know, they just... 
they conceded quite a few goals if you think about the, obviously the Liverpool game that, is that, that, was that the 4-3 that season or was it a different season I that was that season was it, yeah, yeah yeah the defence was always a problem for them they were so yeah. attacking they were so open so brilliant to watch but then they just couldn't get over the line what was it like when you played for Keegan um it were you co- were there when he retired? Yeah, uh, yes, it coincided with my worst period with England. Uh, not, not, it wasn't obviously Kevin's fault. I just made two mistakes against Vasco da Gama in the World Club Championship in 99, 2000, right just after Christmas. It was 2000 actually. And then six months later we ended up playing in the tournament and I was terrible in that six month period. And he never saw the best of me. And I, yeah. I, I'm regretful of that because I think that the reality of it is managers need players to play well for them. And I, I'd gone through my most prolonged dip yeah. Um, for six months where I lost my confidence and lost my belief so I wouldn't say that me working under Kevin Keegan was a disappointment because it was Kevin Keegan it was disappointing because I just didn't play well and we didn't play well as a team we weren't great it was it was actually that 96 team that was really good was coming out so all those players were retired yeah, so yeah. Inter was coming to the end you know Shearer probably coming towards the end and it, it was a case where Scholes and Gerard and Lampard well Gerard was just coming through Lampard hadn't appeared yet but um, Rio, um, Gerard, me, Beck, Scholes, they were all 21, 22, tw- 19, 20. And it was a new team emerging that actually Sven picked up the benefit from as the yeah. golden generation. So it was the 96 team moving out and then the 2002, yeah. mm. 3, 4 team were coming through. There was that middle bit that was messy and, and Kevin got that middle bit. Yeah. Uh, which was messy and it wasn't it's just timing sometimes in management yeah. as, as I found out later on in my career <laughs> <laughs> um, carry on yeah yeah no. have, we, have we did for time yeah good yeah. Well, France 98 then if we stay on England yeah so that day when Glenn Hoddle decided to have a series of meetings with people to decide who's gone and who's yeah. stayed that must be one of the most kind of weirdest days of your career because obviously Phil it, was it, cut it was nah. It was actually the most unpleasant day. People say, what was your biggest disappointment in football? What's your most... Actually, I sometimes say it was an injury of a teammate or my injury in 32, when I was 32, if I'm referring to myself. But actually, now you just remind me, that is probably the most unpleasant experience I've had in football, that. Really? Not just because of my Did brother. You? Not just my brother, Gazza as well. The whole thing was a mess. I mean, you know the, sh- the schedule. He basically put five-minute meet. He put five-minute yeah. slots on the board. Yeah. For thir- uh, 20... Yeah, it was probably nearly 30 players. There were six of six lads that didn't get picked. I think it was Dion Dublin, Nicky Butt, Andy Inchcliffe, Gaza, Phil. There's probably one more. There was five yeah. or six. And there was 23, 23 got picked. So it's like 28, 29 players yeah. got five-minute slots. But the problem was, if a meeting went over two or three minutes, which you'd last turned up early, you're always a few oh, minutes early for a meeting like that. Oh. You had this collection of players in the tunnel, in like a, oh. a corridor, waiting to go to the end of the thing. And then because one meeting went over by 10 let's say he told the first so the players who weren't in were mixed in to the yeah. were mixed in within the ones who were in oh. so the ones who aren't in you're obviously going to have longer than five minutes with them obviously <laughs> like you know, they, want, they want to ask questions why haven't you picked me it's a bit long you can't just kick them out you just left them out of the World Cup squad so all of a sudden it got to the point where when I got down there there were three or four players I was like I was like seventh or eighth I was, early, I was, I was quite um, early in the process yeah. And there was sort of by then there was three or four players waiting in the sort of corridor, but even ones that had come out were then starting to talk to players who were going in, and it was a mess. Yeah. Everyone was nervous. Do you think he realised it was going badly? He had look. Glenn was young manager. Glenn had yeah. best intention. Glenn did it thinking he was doing the right thing by sitting down with everybody one on one. Yeah. So Glenn did it. Did Glenn did do it? I mean, Glenn would never do the same thing again yeah, if yeah. he had the opportunity. So it just became a mess. And anyway, what had happened was my brother was devastated. And I mean devastated because a couple of days before, I think one of the coaching staff had said to him, look, you, you know, you're all right. I think Glenn changed his mind at the last minute. So there was a bit of, there was a problem with Phil. But then the big problem was that Glenn Roder, who was part of Glenn's coaching staff, was best friends with Gaza. And Glenn was, I think Gaza, lads, some of the experienced lads were out on the side of the pool um, sunbathing during this process so some lads started to come out but Gaza was probably late on he was probably like you know 24th yeah. which was like an hour you know, some, an hour later so he just sunbathed he was relaxing you know, he didn't need to do anything and I think he said to Glenn Roder you know Glenn come on what's going on what's happening with me and Glenn looked at him oh man couldn't lie to him he was his best mate oh god and yet couldn't tell him the truth because it wasn't his job he wasn't the manager yeah. obviously best mate yeah. like Gaza smelled what was, something was going on so he basically decided Gaza to jump the queue. 
So he said, I'm going in now. Oh my. Because no one expected Gaza not to be in. Yeah. Just no one. It's Gaza. It's Gaza. The debate might be at that time, would he be in the 11? That might yeah. be a debate you'd have at that time, not whether he would be in the squad. Yeah. That wasn't a debate for anybody, wasn't it? He didn't no. anybody's radar. So he just went right to the front of the queue and he walked in and all hell broke loose. And I was in with Phil. Phil was crying his eyes out, to be fair. Oh, my God. In the, I, was in, I, was, I was sort of in, in, the, in the bedroom and all of a sudden we heard this sort of ranting, this shouting. Gaza was next door to Phil's room and there was like a smash of an ornament or something and there was a no, load of noise banging the doors and I came out and I said, what's going on, what's going on? He said, Gaza's just been left out. I went, what? And, and it was a mess. And the mess then carried on really. And I remember, I always remember the day after. The, so what happened was they all give them a letter and they were then on a plane back within two hours. So he'd organized a plane for them, the oh. five players. Oh my. So you, were, you were out of there. Yeah. So these players were leaving, they were out. In hindsight, if I'd have been an older player, we would have said, no, they're not going. You know, yeah. I, think, I think the way we were, the yeah, way we yeah. were wired up, you know, as we got older, you know, we nearly took them on strike and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, as we got old, we'd, we'd have probably said, no, not having that. Not yeah. having that. They're not going. They're coming, we're having a drink together tonight. We're, you know, they're with us. We're, we're, we're a squad. Actually, they got out. I remember the morning after we got onto the training pitch to do a session, a warm down session before we broke up for two days, before we then went to meet up for the, for yeah. the full tournament. And I remember the atmosphere on that morning, the day after on the training pitch, with the it, we were dead. Yeah. We were dead. Oh. So, I mean, not, there was no life in it whatsoever. I and mean, we had two days off, three days off, so it picked back up again before yeah, the tournament. Yeah. But it, it was just a really, I mean, Terry Venables, I, so we'd experienced it, me and Phil in 96 where lads like Peter Beardsley were left out. Brilliant yeah. players, you know, Peter Beardsley was brilliant to me and Phil. I, honestly, he really was, he was amazing to us. He gives loads of advice, we'd ask him loads of questions because we were busy. And basically, <laughs> no he would, and he was brilliant with us and he got left out. So there's four or five players got left out by Terry Edibles, but what Terry did, it was the morning we were about to leave all together to go back from, it was the Cafe Pacific, you know, the smashing up the plane yeah, yeah, yeah. tour. Um, and so basically what Terry did, we'd had the night out the night before, the players had obviously had a good night, the morning after, basically, they said, look, Brian, we, we, got a, we got a note through saying, can you, know, can you just all stay in your rooms for the next hour? So we didn't even know what was happening, to be honest with you. So what happened was, Terry just went round and knocked on the lads' rooms that weren't in, those four or five. So, you know what I mean? So just basically, yeah. one-on-one, -on -one, the ones that were in, Brian Robson just came round to each room and said, congratulations, you're in, well done. So Brian Robson was part of the coaching staff. So yeah. basically it was done in sort of a way whereby Terry could have a good 15, 20 minutes yeah. with players who weren't in, explain to them why, but it was done out of the sight of everybody else. Yeah. So he'd done it brilliantly, you know what I mean? It was, it, as, as well as it could have been handled, it was handled. And that then followed onwards. So, so I think uh, Kevin did the same thing, went to the players. So we had a game, we had a game in the afternoon, uh, we had a game in the evening at Wembley. That afternoon he went round and spent a bit of time in each player's rooms and said, look, you know, unless there's an injury tonight, you're not going to be in the squad. So the players got their head around it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Glenn just, it was, it was, oh. Glenn tried to do it right, but it would just become a real big mess. When you yeah. went in there for your appointment, is it just Glenn sat there with, in like a on hotel room? Yeah, yeah, yeah on his, in his own room, a, a, table, a table with two chairs either side of the table. Yeah. And just basically, you know, well done. You, you made it into squad. It was a no-brainer. Yeah, um, yeah. You, know, you did. You've done well. You know, this is where I'm thinking of using you in the tournament. And you like the players are sort of right centre back or right back, and we've obviously played three at the back. Um, you know, get a good rest now for a couple of days, and you know, well done. And I see it was a really brief meeting, yeah, two yeah. or three minutes. Made well, up some of his time that he'd lost. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you need to get yeah. me in and out. Yeah. <laughs> and can you get Andy Hinchcliffe from the corner? <laughs> Oh, and by the way, can you just tell your Phil that he's not home by you anyway? <laughs> right, let's talk about something more positive. 1999, the greatest year of, you know, any club yeah. in the history of Br British football, quite possibly. Yeah. Um, Semi-final against Arsenal is probably the kind of... Yeah. Not turning point, because it was going well, but like the bit where it also kind of kicked yeah. into this is possible. Yeah. It, 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 people ask me and I think if you ask all of us lads who play what's the best game you've ever played in that game will always be the best game we've ever played in yeah because it's a game of football it's a one-off game it had absolutely everything from amazing goals sendings off save penalties in the last minute pitch invasions it was a replay it was the last ever replay in the FA Cup semi-final yeah. the last ever FA Cup semi-final wow. replay 
pitch invasions, players being carried off. You think about the FA Cup and what it is. Yeah. That is the FA Cup. You know, the winning team being carried off the pitch, the pitch invasions, the police horses coming on, the police trying to get everybody away. And that, I know people now would be sort of shocked by it as being some sort of like, you know, health and safety nightmare. But the reality of it is, it was actually what football is. Yeah. Passion, spirit, everything coming together. And it was to this day the best game of football that I ever played. In fact, I always remember, you said about me smiling before, I always remember Peter Schmeichel had done his thigh and I took the last couple of goal kicks for him. And I remember with about five minutes to go, walking towards our fans behind that goal, not the Holt end then, the, the other end, the opposite end yeah. at, at Villa, and smiling at the fans, thinking this is absolutely unbelievable. This, it, it was just, it was, it was mayhem. Wow. It was mayhem. I, the fans stank when they came on the pitch. <laughs> You say what? What was the one thing I remember? The absolutely stunt of booze and everything else that you could possibly imagine. I remember thinking, "What is that gear?" You know, I've never smelled that before. You know. Um, and then the semi-final against Juventus, in which Roy Keane basically one of the great performances. What was was Roy Keane ever a laugh? Yes. Was it? Yeah. Funny. Really? Yeah. Good humour, funny. Um, it's like people talk... We've got the same Roy Keane we're talking <laughs> No, it is. And just when people talk about Alex Ferguson, Sir Alex Ferguson, they talk about the hairdryer, and that's yeah. sort of like the sort of... That was probably like 1% of his whole 30-year managerial yeah. career that he probably... I mean, even 0.1%. Yeah. The rest of the time, it was like completely different. Yeah. Uh, and obviously people remember with Roy him on the pitch and the famous incidents in the tunnel at Arsenal and things like that. But off the pitch... Good humour, uh, team player, funny to be around, great company, good stories, and completely, you know, completely yeah. opposite of what people would say with the perception of him, you know, maybe. And I say it's it's not like that. Uh, yeah. But obviously, what he doesn't do is he doesn't suffer fools. But no. I talk, but I explained that earlier when I talked about sort of Steve Bruce, yeah, and Mark Hughes and Alex Ferguson and Peter Schmeichel in the early days at United, they didn't suffer fools. Yeah. Give your all every single minute of every day and reach a high standard in your performance. And if you don't, I'm going to tell you. Yeah. And people have a real problem with that nowadays. My experiences of him are just incredible. Never wanted him to leave the club. Most inspirational football player ever played by a mile, yeah. by a street. You talk about, you know, who do you want leading your team out? Who do you want there to, you know, who do you want at the front of your team? It was him, yeah. and only him. And when he left, we did, none of us wanted him to leave because the influence that he gave the team was higher and greater. That you know, Obviously, towards the end of his career, your performances are never, your, your energy levels are not quite the same, your physical attributes are not quite the same, but what you give the team is, is incredible. And uh, no, it was, a, it, was a, it was a bad day for us when he left. Yeah, with the team, I don't know if you saw Andy Cole just did an interview with The Guardian. There's like, famously, him and Sheringham didn't get on. Yeah. Did, does, it matter, does, it, does it matter that players don't get on? Do you it, ever consider that? It, no, it only matters it. if it transfers onto the training pitch and onto the football pitch on the Saturday. Yeah. If, it, if it's off the pitch stuff, off the training pitch stuff, it's irrelevant. Yeah. And, it, and do you know something? For me, I never, there was never a point whereby on the pitch or on the training pitch, it ever came between the, the team in terms of what... Yeah. The manager wouldn't have accepted that anyway. Yeah. So it wasn't really, it wasn't really us to comment on. But we never, I never saw it once on, a, on the training pitch or on a Saturday or a Wednesday night ever affect the team so the idea that but you know something now if two famous players in a team didn't get on one of them would have to go yeah what about the idea that they might just be able to sort of like you know professional about be professional it, about it yeah. play football and actually do the very best for the team and then not like each other potentially when they're having sort of dinner in the canteen and just going to sit next to someone else <laughs> how about that should we, do, should we start with that wasn't there the incident at PSG and Neymar unfollowed his teammate on Instagram and that was, yeah. that was a big story yeah and then all of a sudden you have these sort of things nowadays where you say oh they don't get on with one another one of them's going to have to go I mean it's ridiculous how can you possibly like uh, everybody in the change room I'm sure there many players in the change room didn't like me <laughs> So let's that night in Barcelona. Yeah. No skulls, no Keane. No. Were you confident? What was the? Yeah, we were. Com- what was the? What did Ferguson say as the last yeah, things? We were confident, and to be honest with you, one thing about it is that midfield of of skulls, Beckham, Giggs, and uh, Giggs yeah. and Keane is the best midfield that has ever been produced in English football yeah. by a street. Yeah. That will never. That those four players in that same midfield. And people say about why? How did you win the treble? And, that is the biggest factor. I mean, Sir Alex, obviously, in terms of sort of what he did, but on the pitch, 
those four were monumental as a, as a four. Yeah. Highest levels of quality, the highest levels of determination, the highest levels of skill, the highest levels of, of, of running. You know, Giggs, Keane and, um, and Beckham could run 12, 13K. Yeah. They could run up and down all day long. They would complete the bleak tests type stuff. Yeah. The strength, <laughs> the strength of Keane, the defensive ability, the work ethic, the dribbling of gigs, the crossing of Beckham, the quality of set pieces, the passing and vision of skulls, the control of Keane in terms of on the ball, everything was just unbelievable in that four. And so to lose two of them was a massive blow. But we never ever worried about players not playing. Yeah, you know, whoever they were, we had to we had to win. You know, it's not it's, you can't have excuses. So Alex Ferguson didn't have excuse mentality driving through the dressing room. So in midfield was Nicky Button, David Beckham. On the wings was Jesper Blomqvist and, and Ryan Giggs. And we were obviously weakened yeah. by the fact that we didn't have those two players in. But we never once thought we weren't going to win. Um, so what was the atmosphere just before you go out onto the pitch? What does Ferguson say in that situation? I don't remember what his team talk was in that game. People say they remember team talks and they remember the half-time stuff. I, I, I generally don't remember specifics in that game or the next game. I do remember certain specifics over time. I remember his, his team talks always had a always sort of uh, had a, an element of being proud to be part of this team trusting your teammates always had an element of being proud to say you work hard and you do your best every single day he always said to us that basically we, he knew the talent that existed in the team and he basically just talked about us working as hard as we possibly can and never giving in and being proud to say that you can do that every day but also about the fact that you um, reach the standard of performance and you shouldn't drop below it yeah um and then all the other things were around making sure you risk and express yourselves in the final third. You know, make sure you, expression and risk and giving confidence to players to do things. Um, so we, we, he just would we reiterate those sort of major messages really yeah. um, that we're always threaded through his team talks for 25, 26 years. Um, in terms of that specific game, I, I do, honestly don't recall. Do you it. remember that? So afterwards, you come. What was the after party like? It was. Um, that's. And that's the first time. Rapper's delight, obviously. Oh, rapper's delight! <laughs> obviously, kicked him, kicked in early. You know what I mean? Well, because we didn't get back to the hotel till about twelve o'clock, and the party then started. It's the first time in my life that basically I've never been to bed. I couldn't sleep if I tried. You couldn't go sleep after that. Yeah. That was like the most exhilarating thing. So I remember drinking till about seven in the morning. And then walking, going thinking, right, let's go for a walk for half an hour in Barcelona <laughs> on the beach. We're staying at the Arts Hotel, which is on the beach. And then basically coming back in and everyone had champagne breakfast. We then drank right the way through onto the uh, plane, got to Manchester off, off the plane, we got onto the open top bus. And that to me was the one thing that stands out the most, dra- turning into Dean's Gate and seeing Dean's Gate. Yeah. And, it and you're fe- st- you, you haven't been to sleep at this point? We've not been to sleep. And uh, it felt like there was a million people yeah, and they were hang- that double vision. At they were this ha- point. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, and they were hanging off every lamp post, a bit of scaffolding, every building tops, uh, roof, and it, I mean nowadays it could never happen. Yeah, and it was mayhem, and I just remember, I always remember people screaming and just the happiness in the face, the, the, the veins and the blokes just crying and the smell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, everything was just mayhem, and that was to me the big, the biggest thing that I remember about the treble in terms of sort of. Yeah. You know, the last minute in Barcelona, I just lay on the floor, lay up and looked at the sky, you know, on the pitch when the goal went in. I was back on the halfway line because I didn't go up for corners. And I just remember lying on the floor. I remember that. And I remember just coming, turning down Dean's Gate and thinking, oh my God, this is, this is like yeah. unbelievable. Um, and then we went, went to the MEN, uh, the MEN Arena, and there's 25,000 in there. That was the end of the parade. Yeah. So it was, it, was a, it was a brilliant day. And then just after that, I think we, we went out again and then we just went home and I remember the day after that just collapsed just feel like absolutely knackered but basically two days never slept wow. um, <laughs> and who had the trophy all this time like, in, for the celebrations was it like you just probably David May <laughs> <laughs> I think David May took it home with him that night you know what I mean there's no security in them days you know I mean just took you back to Middleton to sort of his farm that he had you know what I mean just, just, just slept with it for a couple of days amazing <laughs> um, we I want to ask you about soccer box quickly. Okay. So, my girlfriend loves soccer box. Right. It's a, fa- it's a favorite. It's the one, one of the few football things I can get her to watch. <laughs> you don't know the clip. So this is you yeah. and a former opponent or teammate. Yeah. Watch games together. Yes. 
and often you know games that have gone badly for you is it tough yeah. for you to watch yourself failing <laughs> <laughs> yeah I must admit I, it sometimes sort of uh, surprises me a little bit because it always seems to me that we look after the guest and not me on that, on that, on that show yeah, so uh, there'll, there'll definitely be some clips of uh, things where, uh, where where I've lost or I've done things badly. I mean, to be fair, it was a very really simple format uh, where you're just basically talking about a couple of games that were really important games, sort of at a time, and really relaxed. And you think about it, the Do shows. You remember that done, these games when you're watching them. It comes back to me. It comes back to me. some of them I remember before. And yeah. got you know vivid memory, and then some of them I think I don't even remember playing in that game, and then all of a sudden the game starts. And you'll remember that moment. And you'll think, oh, no, I give a goal away. I remember it's coming now and then. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not tight on the back post. And I can see it emerging. My pundit head kicks in. Now I'm thinking, the right back's not tight at the back post. If they put it in the back post, now he's in trouble. And they did. <laughs> what about the other way around? Do you think, oh, I had a terrible game that game. Then you watch it back and think, actually, you know what? I've done well there. I was all right. I'm a good, decent player. You <laughs> no, I, I, that's why now, I mean, I think... What's what's obvious during a football career is that you do make you know mistakes. I used to I used to live off. So my my mantra for a season was I could make four mistakes for goals. Yeah, one every ten games, and that's not like a real blooper, like you know kicking it in your own net. Yeah, I'm talking about sort of losing your man or getting caught in possession or giving the ball away in a bad area and them going scoring, yeah. where you know the manager's going to come in at half time and say, "Come on, son." And what you're hoping is when you give a goal away, there's two things: one, it's not in a big game. Yeah, and two, that you've won. Yeah, because it can get glossed over. If you create, if you've been in the, at fault for a goal that then costs you the game, that is a bad, that is a bad, 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 bad day. That's, so a, like, per, that's a Peroni day. That's a Peroni day. So that, <laughs> that's like a yo. The Manchester derby, you're giving it to Sean Golter. The stadium is absolutely in a carnival atmosphere after that moment because yeah. they've got you right where they want you, and the game's there. That's the worst day. Uh, the best day is you've given a goal away. And then, to be fair, some of the good players that we had in the team go and score three or four. You're thinking, that's all right, isn't it? You know what I mean? they, they miss chances as well, don't they? <laughs> so it, it really does matter. Those two things yeah. are really important. And it's just good fortune. You know, Lloris, the mistake he made in that World Cup final will never be remembered. Yeah. If yeah. that was the moment that his team lost the World Cup final, he's never living that down. Yeah. He's always having that play back at him. In I've every, forgotten about it already. I, that's the thing. You know, that, so I think about good fortune and the mistake that he made, that was monumental if the result goes the other way. Yeah. Absolutely off the scale monumental for him in terms of the impact on his life, on his career. Now, yeah. you can relax about it. It is a good fortune, there's a bit of good fortune of when you make a mistake and some players are a bit more fortunate than others. You went on, this is a 90s podcast, so we'll end at the end of the 90s there. We should say you went on one another Champions League, numerous Premier Leagues, etc etc but we always end with the same question about the 90s all right if you could go back to 1992 january the first and relive it all again press a button would you do you know something no (laughs) because i feel like i've run that race yeah i loved it but you know having to prove yourself every minute of every day in that environment in the football club it was the most amazing time but you know I talk to Scalzi about this quite a bit, you know, people say, oh, I couldn't wait for that game on Saturday and I couldn't wait for the game on Saturday against Liverpool. I couldn't, I, we never felt like that. Yeah. We never felt, oh, Liverpool's coming up this Saturday, I can't wait. No, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. If you're a Manchester United fan and you're a Manchester United player, the consequence of what could happen in that game is always forefront in your mind. Yeah. To the point whereby you cannot enjoy the build-up to it. You can yeah. only enjoy the after-match and the winning yeah, and the thing was that you went through large parts of your career not worried worried's the wrong word but always thinking I've got to win the next game and that's sort of like I don't want to do that again <laughs> can't face it no I've had enough I didn't know I, you know, I got to the end yeah. of my career and people say I missed, the, I missed the Saturday afternoon I missed the tunnel I missed the adrenaline I missed the sort of I don't miss getting up at sort of half seven driving over to Carrington going in the gym eating at the same time every day I like the fact now that last night I can get in my room and have a dairy milk and I, <laughs> and I can have a, I can have two gin and tonics and a, and, a, and a couple of glasses of wine and I don't care what happens today <laughs> this morning I'm going to get what the match this afternoon I'm going to watch Salford City play and I'm going to have a Chinese after it and then tomorrow I'm going to wake up I'm going to have a bacon butty I'm going to go and watch United play I'm going to go home tomorrow night and I love that 
Yeah. I don't want to have to wake up today and thinking I'm preparing for Everton tomorrow. And by the yeah. way, if we don't win, we're in a bit of trouble and we've lost points. I don't want that anymore. That I've is. had it for 20 years <laughs> and I loved it. And I, I, I absolutely couldn't have, it, it transformed my life, the club, yeah. Manchester United, but the, living under that demand of, of that expectation that we put on ourselves, the expectation that Sir Alex put on us, the expectation that the fans had with us, it was the most enjoyable, thrilling, incredible experience. Yeah. But also, it is every single minute of every day thinking, what am I going to eat? What, when am I going to stretch? When am I going to be there? What, yeah. you know, we were away three nights, four nights a week. We stayed in a hotel night before every match. Yeah. So Friday night, we were in a hotel before Saturday, Tuesday night before Wednesday, and Friday night before Saturday. So three, four nights a week, we'd be out of our house, we'd yeah. be in hotels, we're traveling a lot. And it's, you know, it's just a constant for 20 years and it was a brilliant life and everything like that. But the idea of sort of like a, it's almost like a regimented thing. I yeah. just, I, I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> that is the best answer we've yeah. ever had to that question. Thank you very much. Easily, <laughs> easily the most forceful rejection of that proposal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'll, right, now I'll go and have a dairy milk. <laughs> I've got to finish the rest of that dairy milk that I had. Yeah. Gary Neville, thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Gary Neville, always oh, looked to lot it over Buffon and he's hit the frame of the goal. I think that just, just pinched me a moment here, Rob. There we go, that was Gary Neville, Josh, one of my favourite interviews ever. Brilliant. I loved him. Do you know what I was thinking about earlier? Is I hated Man U throughout the 90s, and kind of still do, but... Actually, listening to Gary Neville talk about the story of him and his five kind of mates from when they were children and how it climaxed in 1999, it's an amazing story and that was an amazing team. And I'm actually now, after meeting Gary Neville, I've made my peace and I'm happy it happened. Wow, that's deep. That's deep. (laughs) The other thing about it is like, I don't know. As like we don't support teams that are partic- like have ever been regarded as the greatest team of any era. But I think hearing Gary Neville talk about what it takes to be a Man United player and to be the best makes me really, you know, of course they were one of the best teams because everything everything about that club was geared towards success. You had to you had to be earthed, you had to have an unbelievable dedication. You were pushed to the very limits of your ability. And I don't think that happens at many clubs. Clearly it doesn't. No. And that's something about that era. That's why they were the best because everything about everything about their life experience was being geared towards being the best. Yeah, yeah. And that really came home in that. There was almost a sense of you know how someone who is royalty is almost groomed to lead. There was yeah. a sense of some of those players where it's like, no, 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 you're being conditioned, you're being yeah. built to be winners, mm. and you just don't get a sense of that anymore. Now, what I found interesting was that kind of you're a Man United player. You know, that's something special. But actually, at the time, it wasn't when they were coming up. Man, you hadn't won the league in 20 years. No, but I think Manchester United have always still had that aura around them. There are certain players, you know, your Robsons, your best. Those people where, like, there is a heritage that comes yeah. with the shirt. Yeah. And the other the other thing, like, that, that question we gave him at the end was like, would you go back and do it again? Like, he was one of the greatest players in the country playing for one of the best teams. And you'd think that there would be an elation attached to that. But what it seemed to me like, the pressure of having to be the best was a burden more than anything. Yeah. And yeah. he wouldn't want to do it again. Like the pressure of that every week is relentless. And I, I get the impression from him that he's glad it's done. And I guess, but the other side of the coin is, you've won everything, mate. Yeah. Why would you? Yeah. It was the best answer we've ever had to that question. Yeah. Yeah. Although... If you gave me the chance to go back to 1990 and live Gary Neville's life, I would. I don't care how many dairy milks he can eat now. <laughs> no, you'd be in the club shop Monday morning stacking shelves. It's review haiku. 90s football review haiku. Review haiku. Now, uh, thank you for all your lovely review haikus on iTunes. We uh, each week we ask you uh, to leave uh, us nice reviews on iTunes, and uh, the review needs to be written about nineties football in the style of a haiku. We'll choose Chris's two favourites. Mike will pick the best, and we'll send them a quickly. Kevin uh, Graham says Hitler's mug, and we have another couple for you right now. First up, Tinny Me Up says the following: This pod is a star, but a better night by far. Pint in Reedy's bar. Yeah, yeah nodding and nodding along. And we've got this one from Telegram Graham. Hearts and Straddles Gould, 
Vinnie Jones watches on smiling. Besant smells dog poo. Yeah. 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 Oh, Nothing yeah. along. Congratulations, Telegram Gam. You get a Graham says Hitler's mug. And we always finish with the quiz. Yeah, as always, it's a 90s football quiz. Josh versus Chris. To see who gets to pick the song that plays out the end of the show this week in honour of our guest. It's a version of Starting Eleven. You all know the rules by now. I pick a match. Take turns to name a player. If they played in that match, they continue. If they didn't, they lose. And the match is Manchester United versus Coventry City. 1st of May, 1995, in honour of our guest, Gary Neville. It's one all for the series. Chris, would you like to pick first? Can I ask, is there anything special about this match? Why has it been picked? Partly because we keep getting people emailing us about fucking Coventry. <laughs> not being on Not this. being in it, so. Coventry, 1st of May, 1995. Who's going first? You. Um, Steve Bruce. Incorrect. Oh, what? no. Come on. That's, come on, the captain. Oh, what? You've got, you got to get one to win it. Yeah, Gary Neville. Correct. It was about Gary Neville, mate. I mean, you are the single worst person I've ever played in that game, ever. <laughs> come on. Um, I'm, I'm very unlucky at this game. Unlucky? You could have gone Gary Neville. It was about Gary Neville. It's not about, it's not about just getting the right answer, is it? It's style, finesse. <laughs> That's the West Ham way. <laughs> uh, so, Josh, which song would you like to play out the show? Striker and Man U together. Lovely. Well, we'll see you next week. For now, Robbie Slater. See you later. Bye. Welcome to the old traffic show. Some say it's better. The devils you know. Coming at you from the top of the tree. Scoring our way into victory. Here we go. Here we go. So here we go. Here we go. When you're singing with one united voice, you're letting us know we have no choice but to carry on. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 